At church, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, would you find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses together this morning. As we continue in this exploration of the, how to flee, adult, uh, flee idolatry. Let us hear the word of the Lord together this morning. Chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put to Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, not, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but, we, but that they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Um, you've probably heard the statement, the phrase at some point in your life, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it. Yeah, doomed to repeat it. Um, have you ever thought about the, like, the truthfulness and the accuracy of that statement when you evaluate kind of life in general and you maybe we if you're kind of into history and you kind of see the very cyclical nature of history you, you know what i'm talking about you see societies rise and societies fall and societies tend to rise for the same reasons they also tend to fall for the same reasons and we can see this just throughout human history this just this kind of put things on repeat that in every human society there's been that that has risen up has sought to improve on the errors of their forebears only to forget those same errors and repeat them. This is just fact, isn't it? It just seems to be what we have seen over and over and over again since the garden in the human kingdom project. And it reminds us of a, another statement Albert Einstein's credited to have said that insanity is, the, is doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results. This is what we do. And we wonder why the world's insane. Right? And we wonder why sometimes we're insane, we're crazy, with things that go in our life. We're like, why, why is it so hard? Why is life so difficult? It's because likely we're doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results. So Paul is continuing to track through chapters 8 and 9 and now into 10. And he's been instructing us the church on how to guard ourselves from falling into idolatry. And he's been regarding these Corinthians who have been indulging in various aspects of the cultural idolatry and the social cultic practices of their day. And he's now going to turn to, in chapter 10, calling the church to learn from the legacy of those in the redeemed community that have failed to run well because they themselves did not take idolatry seriously. And so that's our main idea this morning that we wanted to begin to unpack some for the next few minutes, that the church must learn. It's an important lesson for us to learn. We must learn from the failed legacy of those who gave into idolatry so that we might persevere until Jesus returns. And that's what we see here in this passage, 1 through 11 here, is this, this legacy 
of those who went before us, the legacy of Israel. He's using that as his primary example, and he's applying that to the life of the Corinthian church as he's going through, just kind of, kind of, kind of taking one little point here and helping them see how that's a relevant to us today and how we are no different than they are in terms of their struggle and their temptation to idolatry and how we might learn from them so that we ourselves might live and rest in Christ until he returns. And so let's just look here at a couple of main points this morning that I think will help us think through this. Number one, we want to look at the legacy of those who didn't run well. We're going to take a few minutes and unpack that. That's verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to look at verses 12 and 13, and we're going to look, learn important lessons from them that will serve us well, hopefully, until Jesus returns. So again, just look at that first point there, the legacy of those who did not run well. We see there in verses 1 through 4, he didn't want them to be unaware. What they are struggling with there in the Corinthian church is nothing new. It's been something that even the best of the best, the, the people who have, who, who have tried to be faithful to God have struggled with for the entire scope of redemptive history. They were all, says our fathers, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. And they ate of the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink and they drank from that spiritual rock, this very rock that you and I drink from, which is Christ. Let's try to understand what Paul is trying to do here in these first few verses as he's kind of opening up and trying to relate this to us this morning. The church he's trying to get us to understand is like Israel. Um, and we must remember the privileges that we have enjoyed as God's covenantal people. And we've enjoyed the same privileges that the people of Israel have. And he uses some very interesting language that you and I can begin to use and understand that the kind of those types of back then now are realized in better way in us in the life in the church today. We share with them a baptism. You may, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. We didn't do baptism until after Jesus. But no, he's saying we are baptized into a covenant community. God rescued his people from bondage of Egypt, right? And he did so. How did he do so? Through the mediatorial work of who? Moses. And he says here they were baptized into Moses. Moses' role as a mediator was, very, was to be the representative head of Israel, and that then points us forward to the representative head of Jesus, who's a, a true and better mediator for the people of God. And so he's making that distinction right there. You and I, we share in the same spiritual, the same redemptive heritage that was passed on to Israel, and Israel failed to, failed to inherit it and failed to receive it. They not only shared in the baptism uh, uh, of in the same redemptive community, the same redemptive promises, they shared in communion together. It says there they ate all the same spiritual food. Now, what is that referring to? It certainly refers to at least the manna. And what was special about the manna? It wasn't just to feed hungry people, was it? But the manna was a, it says it here in the text, a spiritual food for the people of God. And that they themselves would identify with their dependency upon God as, as this, this people who have been represented by God in the redemptive, this redemptive promises. They shared in this food, this manna, this spiritually provided food, and it represented a shared communion meal for the people of Israel. And so this meal was one that the Lord provided for his people. And he invites them to enjoy it as they are not like the rest of the nations who get all their sustenance from the world, but they get their sustenance from who? God. And so he's reminding his people right out from the very beginning. He wants to make sure you understand, you are no different. You share in the same spiritual promises as the people of Israel. And this meal then, of course you not know, is a type and a shadow right there of the manna, right? John talks about this in his gospel. We talked about that in our series a couple years ago. One where the Lord provides for his people, just like he provides the Lord's table before his death. And what is he doing in that table? He's, this table represents what? His body and his blood, which are what? Our spiritual food. We participate in the spiritual provisions of God through his son Jesus, and we do so every Sunday to remind ourselves of what spiritual food we actually enjoy as God's people. And so the manna was a spiritual food, and Christ's body is a better spiritual food for the church. 
Therefore, and that's what the punchline is there, they drank from the spirit, same spiritual rock. And that rock was Christ. They, all of these things were given to them, being baptized in this new community, mediated by a, a, a mediator who would come and, and, and rescue his people from bondage. And where Israel and Egypt, they, they, show, they point a picture of something greater where God rescues his people, not just from the bondage of human tyrants. No, he, he releases us and rescues us from the bondage of sin and death. And so Paul, so Paul wants to make sure we make the right and appropriate commitments, the right and appropriate connections here, that Israel and the church shared the same covenantal hope and all these things that were given to them back in the Old Testament were for our good because it shows that God has been working his same redemptive hope all the way through, though it is revealed more and better now today in Jesus Christ. And that they shared, even back then, that the covenant of grace that was given to Abraham was still the same covenant of grace given to the people of God today. It was always about Jesus. All those things that God gave through the Mosaic Law were about Jesus, and it was about pointing people to the Savior who would rescue them from death and from destruction. And that's where it's beautiful, but that's as good as it gets right now. Because now he switches gears in verses 5, and he says this really dreadful word, nevertheless. And you just know this is not going to be good from this point on, right? Like, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. After they were rescued from Egypt, they just wandered. And the reason they wandered for so long was because they had no faith. They did not trust the God who provided for them. They did not enjoy the spiritual food that God had provided for them. They did not enjoy their status as a baptized people and under a mediator who rescued them from their bondage. They would complain. Remember, it wasn't very long after they got through the sea and, and they're out there and they're struggling and suffering. They're going, I think, Moses, you've done something really horrible here. I would rather be back in Egypt as a slave because at least I had a bed to sleep on and at least I had food to eat. Remember that? Are you familiar with the whole story? I hope you are. And he's, he's saying that's, that's what happened to the people of Israel. They, had, they, had, they were beneficiaries of the same covenant and redemptive promises that you and I have, but they were overthrown in the wilderness. They never made out. Remember, this whole generation had to pass off before God would let his people go into the promised land, remember? Before they were allowed to go, and we see that in, Judge, in, in Joshua. And Paul expressly says in verse 6, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, friends, the same challenges, the same temptations, and the same dangers exist for God's people throughout time in history. And we must be aware of those things. Though we are advancing the gospel narrative, the gospel story, the gospel work has been advanced considerably in Christ Jesus who died, uh, who, who lived a life that we did not live and who died a death that we deserve to die and he rose again so that he might conquer death. Even though we live on this side of the cross, the same dangers still are very much the same dangers that our forebearers have and our brothers and sisters from many many centuries ago shared as well so do not be idolaters he says there in verse 7 as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play you know where that's from that quote they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play this was their attitude as they carved out that golden calf when they were wondering where moses was and they were so flippant in their worship of God. Because their hopes were not actually in God, were they? They were, our hopes were, well, Moses is gone. We need to figure out a way to carry on. And so we need to go ahead and, and, and we need to pretend that we're going to worship God. But we're not really worshiping God. We're actually more concerned about our own provisions and our own needs. And they just ate and they drank and they rose up to play. Ecclesiastes says that too, right? that we would just give ourselves to these kinds of things and that we think that that's the end of all of life. Unfortunately, I mean, every man, woman, and child has fallen prey to this 
And then sadly, even sometimes Christians fall prey that this is our ultimate end in life. If I'm happy, if I'm healthy, then I am good. But we should not take that, tap, that, 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 that angle, should we? We would be very much in the same place that, our, that Israel was back at, at the foot of Mount Sinai when God was in his mercy given his law for Moses to come and would rule and govern his people. But they were short-sighted. They were self-concerned. The same things that you and I do when we're struggling with our sin, don't we not? I, I know I do. And so Israel's legacy is not a positive one. Rescued from Egypt, and it wasn't long before they start complaining, and they're in the wilderness, and God's speaking powerfully to Moses, and here's God's people in the valley just being, showing contempt towards the very God who rescued them from their bondage. And so, friends, I just say this because this is what mankind has been doing and longing for since the beginning. This is, this is the human project. This is the, the, this is the very definition of forget history and you're doomed to repeat it. This is the very definition of insanity is doing the same thing over again, expecting different results because mankind has been doing the same thing over and over and over again, longing for our security, longing for our standing, longing for our, 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 our sustenance and our comforts and our accoutrements of Babylon, the accoutrements of, 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 of Egypt, thinking that they will satisfy us and they will not. And friends, in, in case you think or I'm tempted to think that that's for someone outside of the doors of this building this morning. I would, I would warn you that Paul's not talking to Corinth, the city. He's talking Corinth, the church. But God's people are very much not exempt from this same temptation. And that Israel proved over and over again that they didn't really want God, but they wanted the gods of the world. That they wanted to be like the nations of the world. Remember, why did they want a king? Going to advance in the story on a little further. They wanted a king so they could be like what? The other nations. And God says, let them have their king for now. Why? Because my people have rejected me because I am their one true king. It's just amazing if you think about it. If we do self-evaluation, and I do it of my own heart, you should do it of yours, how often... We long for our slavery more than we want our freedom. We'd rather live for relative comforts and pretend we're not slaves to those comforts than to live for the freedom and embrace the cost of that freedom of living in this world until Jesus returns. And this left... Experience, uh, Israel experiencing God's displeasure. That's what it says there in the next verse. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. God was not pleased. They refused to live by faith in the promises of God, and this was the ultimate offense to God. You understand that, right? Like the ultimate offense to God isn't the struggle with sin per se, but it's the, what the sin does. It is saying to God, I don't need you. I need this more than you. And God says, no, that's nothing more offensive than to me than for someone who has experienced my grace, especially someone who's experienced my grace, has been included in my covenantal promises, and then for you to turn your nose up at me thinking that somehow or another Pharaoh has got a better plan for you than I got. See, Christians, like the members of Israel, are just as susceptible to the same kind of, to fall prey, the same kind of, same thing, and the same experiences, and experience the same displeasure with God, if we're not careful. They fell in the wilderness, and for Paul, this is kind of a, an eschatological point he wants to make. Where their wilderness was a time, and they didn't, the, this generation had to pass away. In the same sense, Paul is saying, guided through the Holy Spirit, he wants the Corinthian church to see that there's a greater failure for us if we're not careful, and that's an eschatological failure to receive all the fullness of God's promises that are, are going to be ours when Jesus comes. 
He's thinking very eschatological here. He's thinking in the terms of these people were, these people gave themselves away and they turned away from God. They, 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 they essentially uh, apostatized themselves. And God's saying, please, 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 Paul says, don't be a part of that group of people who will be so enamored by all of the things the world has to offer and think that that's somehow or another, that's where your hope is and fail to receive the fullness of all that God has for you when Jesus returns. It is eschatological in nature for Paul. In the same way that Israel failed to receive their earthly rewards, so the church today should be aware of anything that might inhibit us from receiving our heavenly reward, our reward of the true and better promised land that is going to be ours when Jesus comes to us one day again and comes back for us. The church should be aware of all the kinds of idolatry that is common in all ages. Like, friends, nothing's changed, has it? Isn't it always been some form of eat, drink, and be merry, eat, drink, sex, money, golden calves of whatever they may be. Mankind will tinker around with all of these things and make golden calves and, and objects of worship over and over and over and create a false god in their wilderness wanderings. And then we'll pretend, here's what's even worse, we'll pretend that we're doing all of this for God. Remember, the golden calf was an effort to replace Moses. So in the effort of them, they were so focused on their own needs and they were so fearful of their own needs. We're going to erect a God and we're going to pretend that he's the real one true God. And we're going to use this calf to replace the very God that we say that we love. And they say that we follow. Church, we we need to be careful that that would not be us. And so he gives some examples here of how Israel did this. And friends, isn't it ironic how similar the same things keep getting repeated throughout human history? We must not indulge, verse 8, in sexual morality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a reference to Numbers 25. And he's, he wants the church to recognize the church that we should not give in to the cult of sexuality like they did too. And so again, nothing new under the sun, is it? Nothing new under the sun. The context Paul is referring to, of course, is, again, Numbers uh, 25. And, and if you're not familiar with that story, I'll just give you the, the quick rundown of it, um, is that the men of Israel had engaged in um, pursuing the women of Moab, the Moabite women, and they were engaged in sexual activity with these women. And then they were invited to worship their gods and invited into their religious pagan sacrifices of their Baals. And what did God do as a result of that? He destroyed 23,000 in one day. God will not be um, exchanged for your sexual behavior and pleasure, or mine either. And the world that today that just wants so much of that and wants us, the church, to bend our knee to that, we must remind them, not because God's and God's a, a God who hates people who struggle with various sin proclivities, whatever they may be. But he says, I will not be traded in for that. You will not find satisfaction in that. And he tells the church who, by the way, in our day is bending very easily to this, are we not? We see it every day, don't we? Just read closely the news articles that are out there. They're out there. And so Paul has this repeated emphasis on the sexual morality. We see it way back in chapter 5 and chapter 6. And he says, and he has to come back to it here. He uses this as an example to say, the things that you struggle with in the Corinthian culture and you're willing to accommodate into your spiritual life, we've seen that happen in the past and it didn't go well. It didn't go well. Please don't repeat that same thing. The culture then and the culture now, so the culture, like, I was going to name this Back to the Future, because in some sense, like there's this like Paul looking back so he can instruct the Corinthian church. But we from the future are getting to learn from that instruction. So I was kind of like do some weird thing there. You know, it was going to be kind of cool, but I, I kind of walked away from that idea. But that's kind of what's happening here. The culture then and the culture uh, both then back in the Israel and the culture of Paul's day and the culture now. Are they not eerily similar? Just so eerily similar. 
And friends, I think it's just what it comes down to is that through all ages, there's, there's been this inability for man to, to, to separate his, his sense of his sexual self from his orientation of how to worship God. The sexual culture of all ages is in fact a cultic reality. It's not just a morality issue is not just a political issue it's actually a cultic reality and the church must stand and preach and be clear about the destruction that will will unfold because of it and many christians fall prey to it our sexual identity has such a strong pull that when it is indulged in in a way that is not commiserate to god's creation standards it leads to so much more death and destruction Friends, and I'm just going to say this up front, almost all, if not all of it, starts today with pornography. It just does. We look at how crazy the world is and we think our, and here's what's sad, we think our porn issues are so small, don't we? But they're not. They're not. They will lead to certain death. And we, so we live in a culture that's blind to the destruction that it lives in due to our indulgence in our any sexual aberrations because we've linked them so much to our identity. We can't, we can't conceive in our culture today of a kind of identity that's separated from our sexuality. And, and God says, I can. I can. I made you. I created you. I redeemed you. There is a life beyond that. And there's a life greater than that. And Christian, he would say to us today from this text, please don't fall prey to this. Porn is dangerous. And porn comes in all kinds of packaging. It doesn't have to just be extreme aspects of it. It's everywhere now. It's just everywhere. Sexualized, um, sexual immorality is so normalized that, that pornographic material just seems so ABC these days. And it's not. That's the first example he gives, a relevant example to the Corinthian church. He gives another one. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is a reference to Numbers 21. In fact, I will read a portion of that for you real quick here. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And there's no food, no water, and we have loathed this worthless food. What food were they, were they loathing as worthless? The manna. Talking about like showing contempt to God's grace. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that, we may, that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on the pole, and everyone who was bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. And set it on a pole, and it's and if a serpent is bit any if, if a, bur, a serpent had bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and he would live. These people took for granted God's grace. They 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 they, they turned away from the spiritual food that only He offered. What a gift that God would give us food from heaven. And we would reject it. They died. Many of them died in that wilderness place, not trusting God that day. See, the Gospel of John draws a similar point by noting that this, this judgment in the wilderness with these serpents was about their belief and trust in God. See, that's what God was judging. He was, and that's what God always judges, is our belief and trust in Him. 
And the word destroyed means physical destruction in its original context. But Paul, again, is expanding this to include some kind of, I believe, and, and many commentators believe, eschatological destruction, meaning they just experienced physical death. But friends, your death is going to be much worse if you now reject the, the, the fuller and more, and more, and more expansive view of, and, and, and reality of the gospel. They experienced physical death. But you'll miss that on heaven entirely if you miss it because you don't see Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what the serpent represented on that pole. Keep your eyes on God and his provision. Keep your eyes on, on Jesus and he will provide for you everything you need, even if while you are wandering around the wilderness, you don't get everything you want. Don't miss that on the rewards of the promise because of your unbelief. Paul says. The judgment of Israel in redemptive history is a type, it's a shadow of a greater judgment, namely of missing out on heaven and missing out on the eternal rewards that are ours in Christ Jesus. And so it must be noted again, I've already said it once, but judgment is due to our unbelief, our faith, not our actions. Our actions run downstream of our, of our belief. They run downstream of what we depend on. So God's, he's never, he's never upset primarily with the fact that we might struggle with it, but that we would then live and lean on it with our lives and be so consumed by it that we lose complete sight of who he is. See, our actions, their actions, they indeed point to our belief and our faith or our lack of belief and faith, but it was not in fact the actions that was the problem. It was their attitude. It was the attitude of their heart that was the problem. Their, their testing of God is visualized in that next statement, though, of grumbling in the, at the goodness of God. Grumbling at the manna God provides. Grumbling and drinking of that, that water at the cleft that wasn't good enough for them. And so the question for Paul is how the Corinthians questioning and testing God. And then maybe we might say, well, how do we do the same thing? Well, they were doing it by eating the food in the temples. And why were they doing it? Because they weren't trusting God. They were trusting their social status, as we've noted in previous sermons. Guys, people test God when we look to other gods to do for us what our God does for us better. Did you get that? God's people test God when we look at other God, look to other gods to do for us what our God does for us better. Don't miss that. And so the examples are numerous, but in, in ones that you will likely un know yourself. It, it, we do this in our view of money. We do this in our view of our own autonomy and freedom. We do this in our own view of earthly rulers who rule over us. Uh, and we must remember that one of the reasons that that we noted back in chapter 8 is that is to why the freedom party was kind of resisting uh, uh, curbing their liberty was because to, to not dine in the temple feasts was to basically separate them from their social standing and that would cost too much and God comes along and says but I'm better I'm better, I promise. My grace is not cheap. Please don't treat my gate grace as cheap. It's, it's the problem that Israel faced. It's the problem that the Corinthian church in Paul's day faced. It's the problem that the church faces today, that we would elevate our rights. We would elevate our needs. We would elevate our wants above experiencing the grace and mercy of God and the provision of God, the power of God in our life. And so Paul says here, the reason why I'm telling you all this is so that you would remember, verse 11, that these things happening as an example and written down for your instruction so to, on whom the end of the ages has come. See, the failure of Israel in the wilderness warns the church to avoid idolatry as we wait upon Christ's return. Israel's struggles were not meant for Israel alone, but for God's purposes in helping all of God's people in all ages to put their hope in Christ. Paul wants the people to know that just as Israel of Moses' generation failed to enter the promised land, so we, if we are not careful, might be a part of, uh, we might fail to enter it ourselves. Now, I want to make sure we say something here that needs to be said, and I may say it a little bit more fuller later on. 
in Israel, in Old Testament times, there were two Israels. You know this, right? There was the visible Israel, and then there was the spiritual Israel. There was the visible Israel who would participate in all of the aspects of the redeemed life, covenantal life of Israel, and yet they abandoned God. But then there were the spiritual Israel, those who really took the promises, and they took them to heart, and their hearts were changed and transformed, and they still held on to the promises of God, even though they experienced all that suffering in Babylon and were not there. And in some way, Paul's not here saying that somehow or another there's a you and I must be figure out how to not miss eternity. But he's saying but don't be the people like that were back in Israel where some were just part of the community, but they really weren't saved. They really weren't saved. And so this leads us into our second point here. The lessons that you and I must learn from verses 12 and 13 so that we might run well. Remember, all this runs back to the end of chapter 9 that we might run well and earn the prize and eternal reward. Let anyone who thinks, verse 12, that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's lesson number one. Beware, in other words, a presumptuous view of grace. Many have and many will fall into apostasy. And there's two key words here in this little phrase that I want to note right here. The first word is the word stand there in verse 12. Paul has in mind that we can stand on our assurance of God's grace wrongly. There's a way in which some will stand passively in their faith. Stand passively is to be presumptuous about the the, the grace of God, to be presumptuous about our position in Christ, and presuming upon God's grace cheapens God's grace, as we've noted previously. But Paul here is saying, no, stand vigilantly. To stand vigilantly is to stand actively. And to stand actively is to persevere to the end. Paul uses the ideas as, as to say, don't be of those who will be a part of the church and they will fall away. First John does this in all of his epistles very well. There will be those who, who, are, who were once among us who are no longer among us. We actually read one of the passages uh, that's connected to that this morning in our law gospel reading. What does it mean to persevere? Well, let's look at a couple of passages, shall we, before we move on. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, Romans 14. Romans 14, verse 4. It is before his own... I'm sorry, did I do that? Am I looking at the right one here? I'm making sure I got this down. I may not have it right. As for the one, verse 1 of chapter 14, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only the vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant, on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. The idea of perseverance isn't just our behavior. It's a perseverance in standing on the promises of God in Jesus. Paul clearly says he will be upheld. Why? For the Lord is able to make him stand. That's what perseverance is. Well, if you want to get a little further on it, think about where we're going to head in 1 Corinthians down here in chapter 15, verses 1 through Two, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul says, in fact, the same thing that I was mentioning earlier about the two different Israels. There are people who will be included in the covenant community, but they believed in vain. They didn't really believe at all. They didn't really trust in the, in the full merits of Christ, and that will be revealed in time. By the way, this is why we do church discipline, is it not? That people can be among us, and at the end, they just might be revealed that they don't really believe the gospel. They don't really believe who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for them because they're still wallowing around in their own little mud pie, in their own little mud puddle. And they refuse to let go of the mud puddle. See, Paul, when he, the reason he goes through verse chapter 6 through roughly all the way to 14 is to get to the church to the point of going, I'm dealing with all these side issues with you right now, 
But the reason these side issues exist is because ultimately you need to go back and remember you're standing in Christ. So to persevere, friends, to, to, to not be a part of the apostasy party, if you will, is not going to be contingent on your superior behavior or your ability to be very bold for Christ or your ability to be you know, extra, extra spiritual. It's going to be the fact that you are resting diligently in Christ and that he will make you stand. He will make you stand, and he does it preeminently through his son Jesus who exchanged his life for yours. Stand on the gospel and continue in your faith. There's a second key word, fall. Fall here is used by Paul for the idea of apostasy from the faith, as we've already noted. It's important that we see what he's trying to get at here. I know we've been talking about this idea of apostasy, and some Christians get all turned around about this topic, but make sure, make sure what we're saying and what we're not saying. Paul is not envisioning a place where there's genuine believers who fall away from the faith. I want to make sure we're very clear about that. What Paul is envisioning is that those who came in through the doors and they trusted in some capacity and or they were starting to believe in some way the message of Christ, but themselves were never really saved. And so Paul has in mind perhaps Jesus' own words of, there will be a separation of the wheat from the chaff. He wants to help the church fight for their faith as they wait upon the Lord. That's what he's trying to do. He's not calling Christians to question. He's not calling you Christian to overanalyze your veracity of your salvation, but to deepen your redemptive hope in the work of Christ. Paul is not articulating some exception clause here whereby those who are saved might fall away from the faith. No, Paul is a, he's articulating the dangers that exist for those of us who, um, that, will ex, that, that will expose us to, who are not exposed to real faith and those who are not. I'm sorry, I said that all, I messed that all up. Paul is articulating the dangers that exist that will expose those who are of real faith versus those who are not of real faith. That's what I was trying to say. And that's why we talk about these two Israels idea. There's always been people who participate in the covenant community of people, the covenant community of God, that were not really part of God's people. That's always been the case since God began his redemptive campaign. I mean, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, all born within the same thing. Like Abraham and his prodigy, you got Isaac and Ishmael. There's always been people who participate in some relative connection to God's redemptive community, but some were in and some were not in because they proved in the end that their hope and trust was not fixed on the God who bore out the wrath for sinners and invited us into a covenant community. So God, Paul is calling the church to cling to our redemptive promises, their redemptive promises, and earn our covenantal reward by continuing to hope, by continuing to rest in what? The merits of Christ. The merits of Christ alone. Paul is not calling on some kind of overly introspective wrestling. I met a guy who did that years ago when I was pastoring over at Providence. His son... Oh my gosh, it, just still, it, still, it still affects me and hurts me today. Two of his sons I mean, were just, you could tell the Lord was doing a great work in their life. And they were making professions of faith, as far as I could tell, and they were trusting it and their joy was happening. But their father, because he wanted to make sure they were saved, essentially talked them out of salvation. Because, what? Their life didn't match. And so he was always worried about their life, not what Christ's life, but their life. And friends, we've got to be careful with that kind of, yes, the fruits of our, of our faith matter. Yes, of course they do. But as a result of faith over time. I can't imagine anyone here who's been walking with Jesus for a long time can't go back and give witness to the fact that your life's not exactly the same as it was when you first started it, right? That's what we're talking about. But then he gives another lesson, and this is going to be our final lesson, and we'll finish up. No temptation, verse 13, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Lesson number two. 
And it's a hopeful lesson. Do not despair as you face temptation in this life. God will keep you to the end. Do not despair as you face temptation. So the, 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 the challenge here is to live in a world where you're going to be constantly inundated with temptation and how you didn't live with constant focus and constant uh, hope and constant uh, joy that Christ is who he says he is and he will finish what he, says he's, will finish what he has begun. And so Paul wants to end this section here as he will transition into the rest of chapter 10 the next couple of weeks is with this idea that Temptation will not be alleviated for you. But do not despair, despair, dear brother and sister. God's got this. See, temptation is common to mankind. That's what he says. You're not overtaken by temptation. That's not common to man. There's nothing atypical about your temptation. You might think it is, and we like to write different rules for our temptation over other people's temptation. You're like, well, you don't understand why I'm struggling with this. Actually, we kind of all do. And it's only us pretending when we think that no one else understands us. It is real. Temptation is. It's pervasive in every age. And so temptation here that Paul is dealing with, with is not just temptation in some general daily sin struggle, but the kind of temptation that would tempt you and I to say, it's better out there and therefore I'm going to leave the faith. And unfortunately, many Christians have done this especially in recent years. This kind of temptation every Christian has had to face in every nation, tribe, and tongue. That perhaps their faith was never real. They were part of the covenant communion and they realized, I really like it out there better. And they walk away. But God says to you and I this morning who want to cling to our faith and want to hope in our faith, and yet we still see the very real reality of the struggle to sin and struggle with temptation, the struggle to give in to the world and, and, and put all of our hope and rest in the world, what the world provides for us. God wants you and I to know, brethren, brothers, and sisters, that God is faithful to you and me, even, and yes, even when our temptation is going off the rails. Return to the lover of your soul. God does not abandon you, and he will not abandon you. He does not abandon his people, even if temptation is so strong and, they, and we fear the social consequences of not indulging in all the things the world has to offer us because we're afraid of what the cost may be. And I've said it already, I'll say it again. Today, one of the great cults of society is already mentioned in the cult of sexuality. And many Christians, unfortunately, are facing the hard decision of what it means to follow Jesus as in certain circles of society and still remain convictionally Christian in our ethics and our values. And we must note that Christians may arrive at varying convictions on how we may engage in society as a whole. I want you to know that. I think that's what one of the main points Paul is going to make here, that some Christians may stay in a certain work environment. May, some Christians may stay in a, certain, in a certain social sphere because they feel like it's important for them to stay there, and we must give some room for those kinds of things, of course. A pastor out west here recently said, and I think foolishly said, he retorted the idea that all faithful Christians should leave California at once because it's not worth living there. And I, 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 I can understand where that sentiment comes from, yes? We, we all know where certain, certain cities and certain parts of our nation, certain parts of our world are going and where they're going at a rapid pace. And so I don't want to necessarily not understand where that notion comes from. So let's be honest. We all kind of feel that sometimes. But I think it's short-sighted to have those kinds of ideas because you know what? That same journey is coming rapidly to Nashville, Tennessee, too. So where, 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 are we going to, where are we going to do with that then? And if you think I'm lying, go hang out down there a little bit more now. I lived here 16 years, and I can, try, I can promise you it's a very different city than it was when I moved here 16 years ago. So we're just going to keep moving? Is that the plan? Someone seriously, someone got a moving truck. Are we all going to keep moving together? Are we going to find like a big like plantation out in the middle of nowhere and we're just going to build a little commune out there? Is that, is that the plan? By the way, that's a really cool plan. I'd be okay with that. But I mean, you know, but, you know, but seriously, like, is, that, is this going to be the idea? Is this the idea that we think the Bible tells us to do? Is this the idea that God told Daniel to do when he went to Babylon? Is this, is this, is this the idea that Ezekiel had? No, it's not. 
Is this the idea that Paul does when he engages the Roman context? No, he doesn't. Is this the idea that Peter did when he faced the religious leaders who threatened him to, when he, if he continued to preach Jesus and in front of the Jewish authorities? No. He kept on doing what he had to do, and he just trusted God to protect him and provide for him in the midst of that context. See, friends, whatever context we're in, Christians do not need to bow to the sultry gods of our age in order to have our needs met. God is sufficient for you and me. It may not be everything we want, but he is sufficient for you and I. God is sufficient even if we suffer for our faith. And so he says here this word escape. I think it's a very important word there as we kind of start beginning to wrap up there in verse 13. That he will provide a way of escape that you may endure. The word escape there is not just merely escape from the temptation. It's an escape of meaning God will see you to the end. You will you will escape from this life. You will get to the end. God will make you whole. God will include you in his new heavens and new earth. You will receive your final reward. When Christians stand on our faith, when God Christians rest in Christ and what he has done, when God, God will hold them blameless, that's 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We've, how many times have we referenced that passage over the last few weeks? God will hold you blameless in your faith, even as you stand for your faith. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, believers will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because verse 24, God is faithful. It's not your faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. He'll hold you to the end. Our, faithful, faithful, our faithfulness runs out of God's faithfulness to us. It's not the other way around. Christians are not called upon to prove our faithfulness to God for him and, to, uh, and, and uh, because he's faithful to us or for him to be faithful to us. 2 Timothy 2.13, sometimes Christians find themselves faithless, yet God, Christ, he says, Paul says to young Timothy, Christ remains faithful to them. What comfort that is. Christians do from time to time find ourselves struggling with sin and we sin faithlessly but what's wonderful about that is with hope in christ it's not irreparable is it we can and we will endure to the end for final salvation amen so friends as we go back and just kind of put a nice little byline on this passage and we'll finish up for the morning christians run the race christians can run the race now and forevermore no matter how difficult the race is, because Jesus is better. Amen? Father, help us now this morning as we finish up, we think about this passage in its fullest context, and maybe even as we come to the table, we enjoy this spiritual food that we have before us, as we enjoy this meal together, because it's a real that reflects the, the goodness that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that we get to enjoy this meal this morning with joy, and we love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.